Welcome to Dave's Psychology Lectures from Algoma University. I'm Dave Broadbeck. The following lecture is from uh, Psychology 4006. Uh, it's a new one for everybody out there. Uh, History of Psychology. Hope you enjoy it. I've got my recorder, so I'm running. There's a podcasting app that you can run on your phone, but then the iPhone 6S microphone works differently. And then I had to go see, you have to actually have something plugged into it, but not regular. It's very confusing. Suffice it to say, this morning I had to buy a pair of $9 headphones at the bookstore. Um, so we're talking today about Americans, about uh, not only about. Uh, William James will be a lot of this, but you know, the Americans in general. Um, 19th century United States is dominated by, academically dominated by something called faculty psychology, which is based on this Scottish realist philosophy. Now, Scottish realism is uh, basically a rejection of people like Hume and people like Descartes. Okay. So the mind is composed of a set of faculties. Um, they're innate, but they're influenced by nurture and the environment. In other words, this is actually very much like the way we think about how psychology works today. So I kind of like that. Um, a book comes out, uh, a book comes out with a textbook about psychology. A lot of people call him the first psychologist in the States. He's not really a psychologist, he's a philosopher. But we're starting to get the word psychology showing up. Um, it's usually taught in courses, the, the book itself is used in courses about, quote, moral philosophy or mental philosophy. Again, because there are psychology departments. So where are they going to put it? Okay. Um, and he divides the, the, the faculties of the mind are into three broad categories. There's the intellect, we'll call that cognitive, we call that cognition. There's the sensibilities, we call the emotions, and the will, and that's your actions or your behavior. How he brings free will into the game? But he isn't thinking of it necessarily the same way we would think of free will. It's not a free agent per se. You needn't be, let's say that. Okay? Right. Questions so far? So that's really great. Introductory idea of the states. What's going on? Okay, after the Civil War, as we know, everyone worked on the railroad uh, to build the railroad for Chief O'Brien. Then. Apparently, I'm the only person here to ever watch that show. Hell on Wheels? No one wants to watch Hell on Wheels? It's pretty cool. And there was a guy who looked just like Phineas Gage in it. He wasn't Phineas Gage. There was no Phineas Gage thing. But there was a guy they called the Swede who looked like Phineas Gage. Oh, Mr. Bohan. Um, it's a pretty cool show. Yeah. So the modern universe 
university. Well, we would, if we looked at a university, if any of us went to Bologna in the 1200s, we would look around and look, that's not really recognizable as a university. Right? These European universities we're talking about, we wouldn't recognize them. However, if you went to Michigan State in 1880, it would look the same as here, except there wouldn't be any women. And, or if there were very few of them, maybe told to sit at the back, probably, and not to bother anyone. Um, and, but we'd see lectures, we'd see blackboards, we'd see tests, we'd see labs. Like, it looks like a university of today. Um, this happens typically post-Civil War. The Moral Land Grant Act is passed in the U.S. Congress. There's a couple of these acts, actually. And what, the, that, what they do is the federal government gives each state, or states that qualify, uh, typically states that were never in rebellion, let's say that, eventually the, the southern states. Um, they give them grants of land to sell. So it's not the land for the university, but they give each state, I think it's it's either 30 or 300,000 acres. It's a lot of federal land. It's like, you can sell it. And if you sell it, you can raise money. And if you raise money, you can start a university. But you've got to use that sort of university. You can't just use it and then spend it on hookers and blow. No, 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 hookers and blow, no, 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 no bender references from Futurama. No? Okay, so <laughs> this is what happens, and you get places like Michigan State, a lot of these state universities, Ohio State, are land grant universities. So what happened is originally there wasn't a university, or sometimes there was one, but it was very small, and they said, okay, here, we'll give you this. Now, these are different than the liberal arts colleges. Places like Harvard or Yale or Cornell. Well, not Cornell. It's a special case. Let's not say Cornell. Um, what happens is they say, okay, we got this little say, it's agricultural stuff, military stuff. That's what these places are going to teach. That's why you have schools like, for example, Texas A&M, agriculture and mining. Though you can do a degree in theoretical physics at Texas A&M now. But originally, these were, these were not technical schools, but they were different kinds of universities than we would be used to. But this is where the, the huge explosion in American universities comes from. Private schools like Harvard started having graduate courses, getting on master's and PhDs. <coughs> and these, these universities are created, a lot of them are created basically on the German model that we've talked about. Especially the graduate part of it is very similar to the way the Germans write. So it's not the British approach. It's not the Oxford and Cambridge one-on-one tutoring approach. It's lecture, lab, meeting with supervisor, that kind of approach. And it's about research and academic freedom. So the world, the American, Americans are being very influenced by Germany. And that shouldn't surprise us. I mentioned a few weeks ago that Germany is the intellectual, scientific power of the world, really, at this time. So Johns Hopkins in 1876, Clark University. Clark is the, is the only graduate school at Clark. There's no undergraduates. Uh, University of Chicago, I think it's like that too. Johns Hopkins might even be. Okay. So you think of things like Johns Hopkins as being really ancient, but it's actually 1876. That's not that long ago. That's not, that, that's not as recent. You know, U of T's older Western's older. Now, women, of course, um, 
really should only learn about making sandwiches and such, and, and sewing. And I'm not, that's really the idea people have. That the idea of the women's sphere is this notion that women should be doing child rearing and, of course, cleaning up and cooking. So a lot of them were women's schools, but a lot of them were like courses like how to clean up for a man. I mean, it was really, yeah, it, that you wouldn't recognize today. <laughs> Actually, there was, there was no research to back this up. People said, well, you know, women, if they think too much, uh, it hurts them. It's, it's bad for their health. They shouldn't be doing anything intellectual, really, because it's not good for them. <laughs> it's just so, uh, it's foreign and weird, that idea. Now, a lot of private women's colleges open. Uh, places like Vassar and Smith and Wellesley, Bryn Mawr, most of these places now, in fact, uh, also there are, have, have guys at them. But they're still primarily women's. They're, they were open as women's schools. They thought of as women's universities. So they would have liberal arts stuff. They would have, they would be undergraduate places almost solely. In fact, I think there all are. But, and these are up in, in the Northeast. And again, these, I, I think of places like Vassar being ancient, but 1865, isn't it? 17-something. Or, or Wellesley, or Mark. Like, I think of these as being really, really old schools, and they really aren't. It's all after the American Civil War. A lot of what they're doing is teacher training. Because one of the careers that a woman could have, besides cleaning up for her man, was being a soldier. It was acceptable. Women did it. There were some incredible women that did some incredible stuff, but most of society frowned on Minorities, yeah, okay, so let's see. A couple of weeks ago, minorities were allowed to be owned. So just next to the Civil War, it's a little, this is going to be something really different. Um, way reduced opportunities, of course. Uh, there was, like I said, literally slavery had just been abolished. There was the separate but equal doctrine, doctrine <clears throat> the notion that you could segregate people um, as long as it's separate but equal. Of course, it never was equal. So the historically black colleges and universities get created. These, again, typically originally are thought of as places for teacher training and agricultural training. A lot of these schools now have grown into be some of the best small colleges in the world. Like, they're great schools. But originally, they were basically separate and equal kind of places for black people to go to. Did you say that again? Sorry. And which one? Black people. For, for black people to go to. So separate but equal. The idea. They weren't, and remember, they, they were separate, but they were hardly equal. And they were basically training people how to be farmers or school teachers. Uh, but again, the same with the women's colleges, what ends up happening is there's a bit more, there is a broadening there. And this is mainly in the South. Who's surprised about that? Anybody? Okay, so this is mainly in the Southern States. But there are schools you've probably heard of. There's schools like Grambling and Howard. Like, these are good schools. And these started just after the Civil War. So like I said, they focus on teacher training really more than anything. Now, there's a little bit of psychology, um, but it's mostly within the educational sphere, and most of it isn't research-based. 
right? There aren't really any psychology major programs anywhere, much less in historical black colleges and universities, or as they are sometimes known, HBCUs. You may have heard of the United Negro College Fund, which still uses that name because it's historical. And they basically, it's an amazing charity that raises money for these places because they're historical places where you know poor black kids go to school. Well, it used to be every black kid went to schools because they in the South days, if they went to rivers. Mine is a terrible thing to waste. Didn't George W. Bush mess that up and say it's terrible to waste your mind or how true that is? I miss him. Isn't that great now with Donald Trump? We actually pine for George W. Bush. Oh, he was okay. He wasn't that bad. <laughs> but he was great. Did you see the Trump, the, 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 the SNL debate when they had, oh, God, I was horrible. Alec Baldwin does Donald Trump better than Donald Trump does Donald Trump. You really should see it. It's, it's, it, was, it was gorgeous. It was wonderful. So not a lot of minorities go to graduate school. So that's probably, like I said, not really a super easy set of cards to be dealt to be black. It isn't today. Different, a little bit different today than it was then. But think about this. It's 1880. Your parents, if you're black and you're from the South, let's see, your parents, someone owned them. And in fact, if you're, let's say it's 1880, and you're 18, you were born in slavery. Yeah, that's probably not an easy, so like I said, easy set of cards to be dealt. Now, this is what makes the Francis Sumner such an interesting guy. So he's born in 1895, so he's, so we're talking 30 years after the end of slavery. There he is. He's the first African-American PhD in psychology, probably the first African-American with a PhD. And he went to uh, G. Stanley Hall, who's a psychologist, talk a little bit about at Clark University in 1920. I said, this all-graduate school university. And then he goes to Howard University, one of those historical black colleges that's in D.C., and starts... <coughs> a psychology program there that's pretty well regarded. So, so he's a, I should go back. This guy, where am I doing? <coughs> Here we go. Okay. He applies to graduate school. But first of all, he, he gets into university, he goes to university at 15. Uh, he applies to, I forget the school he went to, but he doesn't have a high school diploma because blacks weren't allowed to go to high school back then. That's not too fair. So, his parents, though, were these really educated, really sophisticated people. So what they do is they, they basically school him. They give him assignments. They make him do all kinds of stuff. So he finishes grade, it's probably grade 8. He's 12, 13. He's done, and in three years, he does basically the equivalent of everything in high school. So by the time we're two years, by the time he's 15. And his parents are giving him these assignments. He's going to the library, reading books. He learns to speak like five languages. And he does this by, it wasn't like you could just go get one of those, uh, what do they, they call the, 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 you download the thing that teaches you a language. They didn't exist that day. Yeah. 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 Because they didn't have to download it back then. So he teaches himself languages. 
he learns to become like a concert level pianist. Like, this is a smart guy. So he applies to, and they, they go, well, you, yeah, you don't have a college, high school education. Here, write an essay. And he writes this essay, and they go, okay, you're in. <laughs> and then he gets to like 18. He finishes university three years. He's 15. So by the time he's 18, he finishes, and he goes, ah, I don't know. That was English literature. I got a trick philosophy. Does a little philosophy. I don't like this, that. This history. Takes a little physics. Here's a little psychology. Applies to, to Clark. And they go, you've got two degrees and you're 18? Yeah, you're in. You just finished you. So he, he's a really impressive guy. And for the longest time, he got no play because he's black. He wrote quite a few papers. Not today, we wouldn't be freaked out by the number of papers he wrote. But he was the official abstractor for psychological bulletin. So those of you guys who have historical trends assignment, if you're reading any of those, any of the abstracts that are written, and you'll notice that in the old days there was three, there were three abstracts. There was one in English, one in French, and one in German. Yeah, he wrote all the French and German ones. Because he'd get these things, so he'd have to read the paper and then translate it into French and German. He wrote 2,000 of those. He was an impressive guy. All right. But who's the, you know, who's the father? Who's the father of psychology in the States? It's William James. Look at him. Just who you can tell. You can tell by looking at him. He also had, and as this was more common, he had an informal early education, not because... Because the way people lived a lot back then, it's a little different than now. Again, learning a lot of languages. There's a lot of parallels, in fact, between Sumner and James. Um, he spent a lot of time in Europe. There's where the parallels end. Uh, just traveling around. Visiting museums. It's a pretty good life. Father said he could learn a lot of languages, so he did. And his brother, Henry, Henry James, you've heard of the author. That's his brother. Uh, he goes to Harvard and gets an MD in 1869. And that's, as you can see, so 42, 62, so he's 20, 27. So that's about right. That's not that that's not bad. It's pretty cool, but 27 is when you get an MD. Philosophy and the philosophy behind medicine was too materialistic. And my again, materialism just means not spiritual, not metaphysical. He reads this French philosopher, Renouvier, who talked about free will, but talked about free will again in a way that was not necessarily a free agent per se. And he, along with a lot of other Americans, was uh, a pragmatist, and that philosophical. That's the idea that ideas and values have have, or sorry, ideas have values have value in terms of their functional capacity, functionalism. What do they accomplish? What do they accomplish? So he starts teaching at Harvard in 1873. So he's what 31, and again, that's not. That's oftentimes when you start your career as, a, as a, an academic here, about 30, 28, 30. 1875, he teaches a psychology course. 
So he's in the philosophy department, and he's teaching a course in psychology. So because the word psychology is in the air, he's got Upham's textbook he can use. He's got a lab set up. Now remember, Wundt's lab isn't set up yet, but people have been doing psychophysics a little bit out there, Fechner and these guys. So he's heard of this stuff. He can read German. Right? And speak German. So he's got no problem reading the source material. So he has a lab. And he decides, well, I, this, kind of, this is stupid. I'm doing all that. I need a textbook. There is no textbook. I'll write my own textbook. There's a scam. That only the students buy it. I don't know if you thought that, but I've always thought that. People would use their own textbook in a class. It's kind of a scam. Except my time with Isabel, when you wrote a book, did it self-published, like on Lulu.com, and she made, she charged <coughs> the least amount of money she could make for each copy, which was one cent. I don't think they actually, she had never even gotten royalties because it wasn't up to like 10 bucks. So. I think that's kind of cool. Whereas if I wrote a book, I'd charge a thousand bucks for it and say you had to buy it. <laughs> I'm sorry, you failed. So he says the right principles of psychology. There it is, 1890. It's probably the most famous book in psychology. And it's still, if you do anything remotely about this early period for your essay or anything like that or your presentation, you really should just at least leaf through principles. You can probably get it online for free because it's at a copyright. So you can probably get it at the, like the Apple bookstore or the Amazon book, whatever. You should be able to find one that's free or like one cent, literally. It's like you should never pay for Origin of Species because it's free. You can download a free copy. So he says the primary method is introspection. And again, you've got to remember introspection here does sometimes mean how does my mind work, but it also means... What am I experiencing? And then Voigt is doing introspection of sorts. So, but he's not being quite as rigid as, say, Titchener or right? So, it is an introspectionist. It's more like the way we think of introspection today, when we criticize introspection. Um, he likes laboratories. He, he had a lab. And he thought for very basic things, psychophysics, reaction times, it's fine. But uh, beyond that, he's pretty skeptical that the lab can do anything. And he criticizes this as brass instrument psychology, which is funny because people call it brass instrument psychology nowadays, uh, psychophysics, and, and think of that almost as a, a compliment, which is not what, what James meant when he wrote that in Principles. He likes a diversity of methods, which we would use today, including comparative psychology. So he's talking about animal learning, which is something that people didn't do a lot of back then. Didn't like questionnaires. And I love what he talked, but he, he, his description of questionnaires, they are among the common pests of life. That's great. And see, that's how he wrote. So when you read principles, it has this... The prose is beautiful. Like, it's beautifully written. It's like when you, read, when you read Darwin, when you read Origins, you read it and go, this is just good to read. It's a good story. So is this. The difference is some of the stuff, he's kind of confused a little bit here. I think the introspection's a tad much. 
but he was a smart guy. One was talking about what we had to do. Unless I know I killed this weird. listening to the lecture um all of the audio is available of course on itunes or whatever podcatcher you're using just search for da- uh, dr dave broadbeck's uh, psychology lectures now going university which is the most ungainly title ever uh these are released under a sh- uh, uh, creative commons copyright share like 3.0 canada uh you can't use these for commercial purposes um you feel free to share them uh and feel free to mash them up any way you want but if you do that that means i get to do the same thing with your stuff 
sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the, uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.